Hey folks, stick around after the episode and I'll tell you about some features we have on our website, murderetc.com, that make listening to this show a whole lot better. I'll also tell you about some other things we might have coming up here in the very near future. For now, here's the new Murder Etc. episode, St. Christopher. The man stands against a padlocked door, shoulders slumped. He looks tired and uncomfortable. His clothes are a mismatched emergency patchwork something like a child might assemble while playing dress-up, or an outfit someone might find himself wearing after running out of a burning house. The man's silk sleeveless shirt is tucked into a pair of high-waisted trousers, making his already long legs seem like they start at his ribcage. His slumped but broad shoulders stretch the light blue sweater wrapped around him. It's a woman's sweater. Its sleeves barely make it past the midpoint of the man's forearms. Someone has taped a piece of paper on the door behind him, from bottom to top, it climbs from five foot six inches to five foot seven, all the way up to six foot six. Even though the man isn't standing up straight, his afro measures ten inches from bottom to top, almost brushing the six foot six line. Tacked on the doorframe, just behind the left shoulder of that blue sweater, is one of those black slotted slates, the kind you can stick white plastic letters onto and spell words or create numbers. Like booking ID 30417, the number assigned to Charles Wakefield Jr. when Greenville police brought him in on the night of the Looper murders in 1975. They would take me, took me and put me in a cell. Seemed like every 30 minutes they would come and get me. Same thing, over and over and over and over. They would put me back in the cell. Then they come and get me all night long. Sometimes, when Wakefield talks about food or family or God, his voice booms and echoes. But there are things that have happened to him, too many things, that take his voice and turn it into a whisper. You have to lean forward to hear. He had, he had a stack of pictures. He had like five or six pictures, bloody pictures, crime scene pictures. And he took me in the captain's office. They sat me down in the chair and said, you did it. Say you did it. Then took the pictures. I was like this right here. Throw them down right beside me like that. When he remembers that night 44 years ago, he can barely bring himself to raise his voice. The way he says police yelled at him that night. The night they first tried to get Charles Wakefield Jr. to admit to shooting drug lieutenant Frank Looper and Looper's father, Rufus. Shooting each man one time behind their left ears. You did it. You don't say you did it. We know you did it. I said, man, I ain't did nothing. You shot him, you this, you this. No, I didn't. Sometime after midnight, the cops took Wakefield's booking photo. In the mugshot, the black letter board is dated 2-1-75, February 1st. A few miles away, Rufus Looper's body was cold in a morgue. Lieutenant Frank Looper was on a gurney, unshaven, his wound packed with blood-soaked gauze and Wakefield stood slumped and confused in front of the mugshot camera, unaware just how long his night would become and just how well he would come to know the names Christopher and Bridges. Christopher and Bridges took me in the office and they uh, put me in a swivel chair. One of them would get in front of me. Christopher, Christopher was on this side. Bridges was on this side. 
Oh, you did it. You did it. You this, you that, you this, you that, you this. We, 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 we got people going to say this. We got people going to say that. Then they'll turn me to the other one. We got people going to say this. Christopher and Bridges were cops, the lead detectives in the Looper murders. In the early morning hours of February 1st, they were trying to close the case before sunup. They had Wakefield in front of them, and they wanted him to confess. To almost anyone looking in 2019, almost everything about Wakefield's mugshot looks like it was designed by Hollywood in a period piece about 1970s crime. But if you look too quickly, you'll think you've seen an anachronism, something the costume designer forgot to remove. In the black and white photo, there is something that looks like thin wires around Wakefield's neck. The camera's flashbulb casts an illusion that makes it look like the wires go up to Wakefield's ears, much like the white wires of Apple earbuds. But this isn't Hollywood, and you know the picture's real, and whatever is around Wakefield's neck has to be something he could have worn four decades ago. Wakefield remembers all too well he's wearing a symbol of someone who lived long before 1975, someone who shared a name with the cop standing in front of him. Bridges was sort of kind of standing off to the side a little bit. Christopher was right in front of me. I would always wear St. Christopher medal. I wasn't Catholic, but I just liked the medal, so I would wear it. I had a sleeveless T-shirt on and a sweater, a uh, button-up sweater. And he was, uh, with the back of his hand, he was hitting me uh, in my chest. You did it, you did it, you did it. Boom, boom. He just kept on doing that. And he cut the back of his hand, hit me in my chest. He hit my metal and cut the back of his hand and it drew blood. And then when he did that, he just stood there and looked at me. That was the first time anyone had accused Charles Wakefield of murder. The first time he'd deny being a killer. Over the next four decades, the accusations never ended, nor did Wakefield's denials. And Wakefield's fear, the fear that remains today, took on the form of a nameless man, staring at him through the jailhouse bars. When Wakefield remembers that night, this is the story that makes his voice almost inaudible. His eyes get wet, and he sniffles between sentences. This man had a hat on and shades. And then he came first time he came by, he looked. I was like sitting in the cell, right in front of the door. That little city jail. Nothing like today's highly secure Greenville County Detention Center. Back then, anyone could walk in the front door and right up to a cell. Thinking to myself, this damn man finna kill me. That's all I could think about. I said, he got me. I knew he had me. He had me. All he had to do was go and pull the trigger. What he was gonna do? Wasn't nothing I could do, cause the little cells like that, right? It was right, had me right in front of the door. You can just walk in there and do what you're gonna do. I know you had me. The story doesn't really sound real. It sounds like a recurring nightmare. A stranger who walked in off the street, staring with evil in mind. You can't run. You can only wait to see what he does. And I just sat there and I kind of backed up against the wall as far as I could. And he came first time. Stood there for a few minutes. Then he left. Then he came back. Then I say, oh shit. No matter who that man was, if he was anyone, he still terrifies the 65-year-old Charles Wakefield. He's the nightmare that's come to kill him. 
and Wakefield doesn't know when that man will come back. He just stood there. He stood there like he was trying to make his mind of whether or not he going to do it or not. I say, I say, is he going to kill me? Christopher, the Saint Wakefield wore around his neck, is the patron saint of travelers. Christopher, the detective bloodied by Wakefield's Saint Medal, was the 1975 Greenville County Officer of the Year. St. Christopher may be a traveler's best hope, but he was no match for Detective Christopher, who planned to send Wakefield on a trip directly to death row. The subject of police can be polarizing. Linus Van Pelt, the blanket-dragging philosopher in Peanuts, he once declared, there are three things I've learned to never discuss with people, politics, religion, and the Great Pumpkin. He could have added police to that list, because for many people, devotion to police is like a religion. And for many others, you can't talk about police without talking politics. In Greenville, you can't talk about 1970s police without talking about James Q. Christopher or David Michael Bridges. Christopher's friends call him Chris, and they speak his name with reverence just like one-time officer Melvin Croft does. I got to know Christopher real, real well once he took over Vice. And we worked together real good. Because I was straight up with Christopher, and he was, he was don't bullshit him, because he'll put you on their list and you'll never come up. Bridges' friends call him Mike. And to hear legendary prosecutor and judge Billy Wilkins talk about him, Bridges' devotion to sending cop killers to the chair was absolute. And that devotion became a lifelong obsession with Charles Wakefield, Jr. Mike was a close friend of mine, and Mike thought that he firmly believed that he killed two people, including a law enforcement official. Christopher Bridges and Wilkins were all young men in 1975 when they became a three-man team pursuing justice for Frank Looper. And by the year 2000, their power and experience made it futile to try to fight them. One-time New York attorney Eric Gottlieb had the audacity to try. I had never heard of Billy Wilkins. He's not a household name uh, where I come from. Mike Bridges, Jim Christopher, never heard of him. I didn't understand the degree of politics and how much I was up against with these guys. Gottlieb's fight happened decades after the murders. To understand how Christopher and Bridges came to become icons in Greenville County law enforcement, you have to talk to the people who worked alongside them back in the 1970s, like Melvin Croft, a Greenville City police officer for most of that decade. If you looked at a map on the day Croft started, you would have found Greenville County in the same spot you find it today. But Croft remembers a much different place. It was kind of rough back then because you still had them older police officers that didn't particularly care for black people. I think it was total about, about six of us, 1972. One of the first black Greenville City police officers, Croft knew West Greenville very well, and that meant he came to know the county's top drug lieutenant, Frank Looper. Well, Frank was a hell of a good cop. A hell of a good cop who lived in the heart of the West Greenville community and met his killer there. Melvin Croft said he was one of the first cops on the crime scene, a young black cop asked to sweep a black community looking for a killer 
described in the kindest of descriptions as a young black man. As you can probably figure, every law enforcement car in Greenville County was over in West Greenville that day. Croft played no role in catching Wakefield. In fact, on the day of the murders, he told detectives to turn their attention to a wealthy family named Syracuse and their son George. Nevertheless, Croft says the Greenville police put one of their best cops on the case. Now, Christopher, he was a character. Jim Christopher was a 32-year-old vice cop in charge of his division. Put another way, he was to Greenville City what Frank Looper was to Greenville County. Croft says Christopher would stop at nothing to solve even the smallest crime. Oh, boy. <laughs> Put it this way, they would lay in a pile of cow shit all night long to catch you stealing a half a slice of bread. That's just how thorough they were. I mean, they turned every stone. When they didn't arrest you, there was absolutely nothing there. So, Croft felt certain justice for his friend Frank Looper was in the best possible hands. The hands of a superior officer named Jim Christopher. Christopher was a Marine. He joined the Greenville Police in 1964. He made detective by 1970, and at the time of the Looper murders, had just earned a promotion to lieutenant. Just three days after Frank Looper died, a committee that included Police Chief Ian Norris and Sheriff Cash Williams named Jim Christopher as Greenville County's Law Enforcement Officer of the Year. He was, in the eyes of law enforcement officials, a saint. Croft couldn't think of a better man than Christopher to hunt down the Looper's killer. And even Croft still thinks about what he would have done if he had caught that killer first. I'd be 69 in December. The only time in my life that I've ever felt like this, and I'd have ran across the fellow that I thought killed Frank Looper, I would have blowed his fucking brains out and wouldn't talk nothing about it. Jim Christopher did not blow out Charles Wakefield Jr.'s brains on the night of January 31, 1975, but the investigation Christopher helped direct over the next 12 months would be almost as devastating. His conviction to secure a conviction, that all-night-in-a-cow-field kind of conviction, was notorious, even if it didn't always work. You might remember Billy Wilkins talking about Christopher's network of criminal informants, people given some leeway to be criminals, as long as they helped their favorite cop. Christopher had an informant in Greenville who dealt in stolen goods. And he was given a ride, a free ride, to some degrees, and it didn't get too out of hand because by dealing in that element, he knew what was going on lots of times. And he would give Christopher tips. He never testified, he never came to court. Christopher never, he never came to Christopher's office. That informant's name was John Olin Butler the first person to speak Charles Wakefield's name to Jim Christopher. You might also remember Leonard Brown, the crusading sheriff's candidate and security company owner, who had more than one run-in with Greenville County's not-so-finest. Brown tells a story about Jim Christopher setting out to bust Junior Adams, the owner of the notorious Adams junkyard. Christopher thought Junior Adams was fencing stolen property. Brown says Christopher put a wire, what some folks would call a bug, on John Olin Butler, in hopes of nailing Adams. But first, Christopher had to call Sheriff Williams about a jurisdictional issue. So they wanted him to set Junior up. Junior's outside the city, about 300 yards or so. So they tell Cash about it. said, look, we, we 
we're going to pull this deal. We want to let you know about it because out in the county, we, if we need you to help, we need you to help. The way Brown tells it, Cash Williams figured he could use the information to help himself. And so he called up a former rival to curry favor with him, a rival named Bob Skelton, that corrupt former lieutenant at the sheriff's office who was known to spend a lot of time at Adams Junkyard and who was connected to people who could either help or hurt an ambitious politician. They told Cash about it, and Cash calls up Bub. They're going to give this guy a wire and let him go sell some stuff, tell him he stole it, you know? Stole the stuff over there. <laughs> As the story goes, Christopher put a bug on John Olin Butler and sent him in to talk to Junior Adams. So he hooked him up, and he goes out to Junior. Bub's done told Junior what's going on, so he goes to sell the stuff to Junior. And Junior said, tells him he need to get the hell out of here with that stolen stuff. And, uh, so at any rate, Junior don't buy the stuff, so they don't make the deal on Junior. So they mad as hell about it. Jim Christopher's mission to go after the owner of a well-connected junkyard, one that served as a hideout for known crooks, was not a success. But Leonard Brown says the legend of Cash Williams, Bub Skelton, and Junior Adams grew even further out of hand that day and would eventually lead to big problems for the sheriff and to add insult to injury. As John Olin Butler left with Christopher's hidden bug recording everything, Junior Adams bid him goodbye. And the last thing Junior told him when he left was, you can take that bug you got and stick it up your ass. <laughs> Jim Christopher, at 32 years old, may not have always been a success, but he was a rising star. And his chief had put him on the Looper murders, one of the biggest cases in all of Christopher's career. What he did with it would make his badge shine brighter than ever before. Successful men tend to make enemies. They can even develop unwanted reputations. Lynn West worked among Greenville County's cops, jailers, and attorneys for 30 years as a go-between between criminal defendants and defense attorneys. He didn't spend a lot of time around the city cops. And I didn't hang around city detectives at all. I knew a few of them, but I didn't know a whole bunch. I didn't. I knew Christopher. I knew Christopher as just being a loudmouth bully, which is what he was. He would bully people into giving them stuff. That was all West really wanted to say about Christopher. And over the many years of the murder, etc. investigation, that has been a common theme. People who agree Jim Christopher was very good at getting what he wanted, and people who would rather not say much more than that. Because Christopher stayed on at the police department for several more years, did a brief stint as an entrepreneur, and then went to work for South Carolina's state-level version of the FBI, the State Law Enforcement Division. We call it SLED. And that's where Christopher rose to be one of its top officials before finally retiring. Jim Christopher had a lot of people who just called him Chris. Friends, crooks, politicians, lots of people with power. And in 1975, as a man in his early 30s, he led an investigation that would haunt his community for decades to come. Lynn West doesn't pull punches about Jim Christopher, but as for Christopher's partner on the Looper murder case, West says he can only rely on that fabled word on the street. Somebody said he didn't do anything. When he, he said he got most people else to do his work before, and then he took the credit for it. Don't know anything other than what rumors were around at the time, and rumors are rumors. They could be true or they could be false as I don't know what. West is talking about Mike Bridges. And if you've been listening since the beginning of Murder, etc., 
you know that Bridges was a big reason that I ended up in the middle of all of this to begin with. This right here is a miscarriage of justice. And it's just beyond me how a man that kills two people in an armed robbery, one a law enforcement officer and his father, ruins all those lives, and they let him walk out. That is Mike Bridges ranting into my microphone nearly 20 years ago when the South Carolina Parole Board agreed to let Charles Wakefield Jr. out of prison. Bridges didn't stop yelling, and within weeks, the parole board changed its mind, citing a technicality, and told Wakefield he had to stay behind bars. Bridges' protests were in line with his legacy. He joined the Greenville Police in 1968, quickly rose to be a sergeant, then detective, and after his case put Charles Wakefield away, Bridges made captain. By 1987, he was chief of police, a job he worked until he retired in February of 2000. The newspaper headline then read, Bridges Leaves Polished Force Unmarred by Controversy. My important memories of Mike Bridges come from a time after he was already out of law enforcement. So I asked Melvin Croft, the man who still carries a deep respect for Jim Christopher's skill as a cop, what he thought of Bridges, a man who spent 13 years as Greenville's police chief. Bridges never should have been chief. Why's that? Oh, hell no. Bridges wasn't no damn cop. I heard some people say that I was actually, I actually interviewed Johnny Mack one day, and Johnny Mack said, that, <laughs> Oh, Jesus. He, he said, he said that. Croft's surprise there was something that I'd heard more than once when I told people I asked Greenville County's longest serving sheriff what he thought of the longest serving police chief in the city. When I sat down with Sheriff Johnny Mack Brown, it wasn't too long after somebody had told me on pretty good authority that Sheriff Brown and Chief Bridges had once, well, some people would call it a meeting, and others would call it a fistfight in the parking lot of the County Law Enforcement Center. About halfway through my interview with the sheriff, I decided to ease up to the question. You came up at the same time, essentially, as Mike Bridges and Jim Christopher, who were the chief investigators on the Looper case. What was your relationship like with them? Friendly. Sheriff Brown paused and seemed to consider his words, deciding to first talk about how he felt about Charles Wakefield's conviction. You know, I don't remember enough about the investigation, Brad, to, um, I wasn't involved in it. I didn't know the facts. And so all I can tell you is what I think, yeah, what I've heard. But uh, there wasn't a lot of evidence, uh, to, in my opinion, that, uh, to convict Charles. And because I wasn't a solicitor and I wasn't an investigator, but uh, the people thought that, that he was railroaded. And I don't know that to be true or not, but um, there wasn't a lot of evidence pointed to him. To be clear, this was not the response I expected from the sheriff or any sitting elected official, especially one in law enforcement. It's very rare to hear anyone in the law enforcement family have the courage to speak out publicly against one of their brothers or sisters. So it's almost shocking to hear Greenville County's most respected and long-serving lawman take the position he did on Wakefield. In fact, when I went to talk to the sheriff, I went primarily because he worked so hard to improve Greenville County and fight against corruption in law enforcement, not because I thought he'd have an on-the-record opinion about how good or how bad the case against Wakefield was. It was especially surprising because in the 1990s, when it looked like Charles Wakefield Jr. would get out of prison, Sheriff Brown was one of the voices in the chorus of protest, although a voice that spoke very quietly. You were quoted a couple of times, never saying anything directly about the case, but you, you did say something to the effect of, you know, I, anyone who kill, kills a police officer shouldn't be able to get parole or something like that. So I'm curious from your perspective in saying that back then, you know, 
if if that was simply just something that as a sheriff you felt in terms of respecting law enforcement you had to say or if it was something else well it was it was the fact that uh, that, uh, that just exactly what you said respecting law enforcement that I thought it was my job to say if he killed the police officer they need to be paroled I didn't say he did kill the police officer. I said if he killed the police officer, he should be paroled. Sheriff Brown told me when he lent his voice to that 1990s Wakefield parole protest, it was just what he thought he should do as sheriff. Despite not having much confidence in the case Jim Christopher and Mike Bridges made against Wakefield, the sheriff parsed his words in an effort to respect the badge. But all of that aside for the moment, I still wanted to know about Mike Bridges. Sheriff Brown first said his relationship with detectives Jim Christopher and Mike Bridges had been, in his word, friendly, which, at least in terms of Bridges, was not at all what I had heard. The next clip is a little bit long, but I want you to hear it just as I did. What Greenville County's most beloved sheriff had to say about Mike Bridges, one of the men who built the case that sent Charles Wakefield to death row. It is not the type of thing I'd ever heard on the local news. And I honestly didn't expect Sheriff Brown to answer. I asked about Bridges because uh, someone told me a funny story once. And you can just tell me to shut up and you don't want to talk about it. So somebody told me you and he, him didn't get along really well at one point and that you might have even gotten in a fight in the parking lot at one point. Well, well, I get in a fight. I think I just told him not to ever speak to me again. Just leave me alone and don't speak to me. And uh, Bridges was, um, I don't want to talk about him. He's dead, but... Um, uh, city police officers used to say I knew more people in the city police department than Bridges did and because I would go out the door and I'd speak to everybody and Bridges would put his sunglasses on and walk out the door and would speak to a soul, not even even his own people. You know, it's um, we didn't get along, we didn't see eye to eye, we didn't see, I remember going over there one time and said, Mike, let's just put our vice narcotics unit together and uh, I'll supervise them, and we'll split down the middle of whatever we uh, see. I don't want to do that. I'll tell you. Well, I got up and walked out. Um, he was tough to get along with, and um, and I remember one time the um, Harold Jennings was actually chief, and, um, and again the uh, city vice went out in the county to work a case, and one of their guys got shot in the leg, and I went over talked to Bridges and. Look, you need to stay out of the county, and we got into some argument, and, and uh, I can't remember what he said something to me, cussed me or something, and uh, and I went over to Jennings, and uh, I said, if I had a captain that talked to you like Mike Bridges talked to me, I'd fire him. And then about a few minutes later, Jennings come over and said, well, I believe what my captain said. Fine, but forget it, you know. But uh, from that time on, Bridges and I didn't get along. <laughs> so it's always that city-county thing back Yeah, and yeah, city-county. And, you know, it, I, I don't know where it's changed much or not. The end of the sheriff's answer isn't a throwaway comment. Just like Jim Christopher and Cash Williams clashing over the failed Adams junkyard sting, and just like the Greenville City Police turning away FBI agent Tom Donahue when he showed up at the Looper murder scene, jurisdictional turf wars were real. And they were wars a young, freshly elected county prosecutor named Billy Wilkins had to manage. If I'm doing the math wrong, tell me, were you in your early 30s when you started as solicitor here? I think I was 32. At age 32, Wilkins was a rising star in South Carolina's legal community. He took over for the chief prosecutor of Greenville County and its neighbor, Pickens County. In Greenville, he found rampant, institutionalized law enforcement corruption in the agencies that were bringing him as cases. 
and one of the cops he considered honest told him good cops were out of options. He said, what do we do? We got nobody to turn to because the, the sheriff was not interested in doing anything and really the corruption was not in the city police department. And, you know, one police department versus another, very turf conscious back then, um, even on the federal level. The federal level, like the FBI, that was more than a little perplexed by city detectives telling them they didn't need any help investigating the murder of a drug cop. A drug cop killed just weeks into Wilkins' career as a prosecutor. His first year in office would be one of the deadliest and most confounding years in the county's modern history. Then we had all these murder cases, you know, that we tried. I tried a case, I don't know how many murder cases I tried the first year I was in office. Just back to back, just about, you know. At some point, you'll hear about how the county spiraled out of control in 1975. How Wilkins and his trusted city detectives were overwhelmed with hard-to-solve major cases. Still, more than four decades after the Looper murders, Wilkins says he has complete confidence in the case against Charles Wakefield Jr., the case hand-delivered by Jim Christopher and Mike Bridges. I have no, I, I have no reason to believe that, that Bridges or Christopher cooked the books. They never did it in any case I've ever known, and I, I don't know uh, anybody that can ever say that they did that. Anybody. Well, he might actually know of one, Eric Gottlieb, that attorney from New York. One of the things that really surprised me was, you know, this was the worst kept secret in Greenville that Charles did not kill the loopers. Everyone associated with the criminal justice system at that time, whether it's for the defense bar or in law enforcement, they, they all knew exactly what had happened. Gottlieb's investigation into the Looper murders and the case against Wakefield was the first one of any note that had happened since 1975. And almost immediately, Gottlieb focused on what Billy Wilkins thought was some of Jim Christopher's best detective work. Finding eight months into the investigation, one of two witnesses who would make Wilkins' case against Wakefield. A man with the unlikely name of Wyatt Earp Harper. One on a Saturday afternoon, Christopher goes in, he gets the book out, the, the investigative book, and he starts going back through it, seeing what he's missed, if anything. And he hadn't done the interview, but somebody had interviewed Wyatt Earp Harper. And Wyatt Earp had, had not admitted to anything, but he says in the statement that he, he'd known Wakefield for a long time. So Christopher tracks him down, and Wyatt Earp says this. What Wyatt Earp Harper told Jim Christopher, and eventually a jury, was arguably the testimony that made the entire case. Without Harper, there might not have been a case against Wakefield. Here's a moment from some footage Gottlieb put together back in the early 2000s. Wakefield's conviction was based primarily on the testimony of one witness, Wyatt Earp Harper. Which seemed all the more important when in 2001, Wyatt Earp Harper told Gottlieb on camera that he lied, that the detectives knew it, he said detectives Jim Christopher and Mike Bridges and Billy Wilkins coached him on his testimony. This is the voice of Wyatt Earp Harper. We went to the motel. You know, you take you to the motel so you can be with your girl. All this kind of good treatment and everything until the time when it came for me to go to court. When that time came, you know, he sat there in front of me just like you were sitting right now, and, you know, making sure that I say everything that was told me to say. And from that point on, I did what I was supposed to do. And that's the last time I seen Wakefield 
in the courtroom. That was the first time I ever seen him in my life. It was the last time I ever seen him. To almost anyone who knew Gottlieb's interview existed, Harper admitting he lied to help his own case seemed like a blockbuster, a game changer, the testimony that would set Charles Wakefield free. However, by the time Eric Gottlieb got a judge to hear what Harper had to say, Gottlieb says he knew about the reputations of Wilkins, Christopher, and Bridges. He knew their power, and he knew exactly how the Wyatt Earp Harper hearing would end. I knew there was absolutely no way that any judge in his right mind would would find for us and rule against Billy and Mike and Chris. I, I knew that was never in a million years would that happen. In future episodes, I'll tell the full, twisted, and baffling story of how Wyatt Earp Harper helped send Wakefield to prison and what the murder etc. investigation has revealed. But the short version is this. Gottlieb was right. Harper admitting he lied did nothing to help Wakefield. And Mike Bridges spent the rest of his life making sure Wakefield stayed in prison. It's the last thing that I want to deal with. But, uh, you know, this really upsets me. And, I, and there's no reason for it, no call for it. And it's miscarriage of justice. And, and I hope that, that somebody, somebody has to answer some tough questions in, uh, on this case. Today, Billy Wilkins says he never felt comfortable with Bridges' very loud, very public decades-long battle against anyone who supported Wakefield. I thought maybe Mike may be stepping out of bounds a little bit, by, but I think he just got, it got something that uh, he, he got overly interested, I thought, in, 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 in seeing what he thought was justice in the case. And once we prosecute, and once a jury convicts, and once the Supreme Court and whatever other courts involved give it finality, then it's up to the administrative system, and that's the parole system. And that's when victims or family and all that can come in. I just, I, I, I told Mike, I thought it's a little beyond the pale for a police officer once you've done your job to go down and... Go down to Columbia, South Carolina for parole hearing. A trip Bridges was happy to make as long as Wakefield didn't go free. And as far as Wilkins is concerned, Bridges' motivation was that he was angry a Supreme Court decision spared Wakefield frying in the electric chair. He commented to me that, you know, that wasn't justice in the case. He killed two people and he should uh, suffer the ultimate penalty. I do, I do believe that's part of his motivation. He just didn't think. But I do know that I, I, did, I did not believe that I should be down there protesting. I didn't believe police officers should be. Uh, just as a matter of appearance. I mean, we do our job and that's it. Wilkins, Bridges, and Christopher all viewed their jobs in slightly different ways. They were all very different men young men in their late 20s or early 30s who took on a case that would help define their careers and Greenville County's future. Their legacies are lasting. Wilkins went on to be Ronald Reagan's first appointee to the federal bench and eventually the chief judge of the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals. He's now an attorney with a major law firm, and his son holds the same job he did in 1975, 13th Circuit Solicitor, the chief prosecutor over two counties. After retiring from SLED, Jim Christopher co-authored a crime thriller with a local author before battling and eventually dying from Parkinson's disease in August of 2018. Mike Bridges suffered heart problems that forced him to retire. He lived for 10 years after retirement and died in 2010. You should know, both Bridges and Christopher earned the highest honor a Greenville County law enforcement officer can receive, the Billy Wilkins Award 
for excellence in law enforcement. What a lot of people don't realize, when you're in law enforcement, that's your family. You spend more time with them than you do your actual family. You know, how many people spend, spend eight hours a day with, with their family? Melvin Croft left the police department in 1979, leaving his law enforcement family behind. During that particular time, it was almost like a damn brotherhood. I back you up, you back me up. I mean, that was the kind of system that the police had there. And they didn't throw you under the bus. So it was just, you know, one big happy family. Well, not always happy, but you know. And even today, knowing everything he knows, he still believes Jim Christopher was a good cop. A good cop who was especially good at making a case. And that's why it was surprising to hear what Croft had to say next. But my partner at that particular time, he said, man, well, Wakefield couldn't hit the side of a damn barn. This was a professional year. Melvin Croft, a man who will still openly cheer Jim Christopher's police work, doesn't believe Charles Wakefield Jr. killed Frank and Rufus Looper. He doesn't believe Wakefield, on a street full of stores full of cash, would choose to rob an old garage. So why in the hell would you just walk into an auto mechanic shop? Old 10 building. So it just didn't make sense from, from, from start to damn gonna finish. He doesn't believe robbery was even the motive. Croft believes a hitman killed the Loopers and vanished. And my theory was that whoever hit Frank and his dad, by the time we got to West Greenwood, they were halfway to a damn Atlanta. He doesn't believe Wakefield got the kind of legal defense he should have, and that police knew they could close their case without too big of a fight. Wakefield was poor, had no means of getting a doggone attorney. You know, hey man, we, we're gonna shut this case up. And that's basically what they actually done. That's the very reason why you get so many people that's letting out of prison now, because of the system back then. The, the way this doggone system worked. It was jacked up, but you couldn't say nothing about it. It was just a jacked-up system. Croft is a law enforcement supporter, a former law enforcement officer, an ardent supporter of Jim Christopher's reputation as a cop. And what Croft believes is Jim Christopher, with Mike Bridges' willing help, did whatever he could to close the Looper murder case, even if he didn't actually catch the real killer. Get it done, make you look good, make the de department look good. Who in the hell gives a damn who, who damn suffered behind me? That's tough. Well, that's the way the system was. During that particular time, you didn't really buck the system. Because, as Croft sees it, a man could be a very good cop without having to really care about justice. Or as Croft put it, imagine the detectives finding a way to take a bunch of random jigsaw puzzle pieces, ones they could push together, ones that would hold on to each other. And if a piece doesn't fit, they just force it. In the end, if those pieces hold together long enough, it doesn't matter if the picture the puzzle's supposed to reveal makes any sense at all. By the time anyone notices that, the cops are gone. It's like a doggone puzzle when you force stuff in to damn fit to try to make the puzzle come, come damn complete. Today, Croft looks at that puzzle Christopher and Bridges assembled in 1975, and he knows the picture he sees isn't right. The only thing that haunted me about it 
that it should have been a more thorough investigation. Frank was a damn good man. Damn good man. Frank didn't deserve the justice that, that they give. The case should have been investigated more thoroughly. Frank deserved better than that. In my mind, that's still a cold case. Christopher the Saint, the one Charles Wakefield wore around his neck, was said to be a strong man who would carry travelers safely across water to dry land, who one day, with a child on his shoulder, began to struggle and wonder if he could make it to shore. The story of St. Christopher says he carried the weight of the world on his shoulders, and just when he thought he would collapse into the water and drown with the child, his faith in God carried him to the other side. Today, there's a man that thinks about Christopher the Saint, about Christopher the Detective, and about Detective Mike Bridges. That man thinks about the weight he's carried for four decades. And when he does, Charles Wakefield Jr. prays for the men who hoped he would drown. The funny thing about today, I was thinking about Christopher, and I was thinking about Bridges, and I was thinking about all the things that they had done to, to ensure that I be convicted of that crime. And you think about what's in their heart and what's in their spirit, that they would go to that extent to do that to a person, to gain whatever it is that they gained. And I just hope and pray that they got whatever it was that they was after in this life. Before closing out the show this week, I want to take the chance to tell you about a few things that are going on with Murder, Etc. First, if you go to our website and look for the words, What's New on the front page, you'll see that the show now has an interactive timeline that highlights key dates and things that happened around the time of the Looper murders. We'll be updating that regularly, just as we do the section called The File. That's where we put documents, photos, and our list of every person who's been named on the show so far, and a little bit about them, so it's easier to keep track. You can find all of it on MurderEtcPodcast.com. You can search Google for it or just type MurderETCPodcast.com into your web browser. And while you're there, check out the section that tells you how to send us your tips. The Murder Etc. file was thousands of pages thick before we started the show. But in just the past couple of months, we've had listeners like you who had connections to the case send us photos and documents and some other things that we're not talking about yet. If you think you have something that would benefit the investigation, the website will tell you all the ways you can reach out through your phone or computer. Or if you're old school, we also have a mailing address. Last thing, we've been hearing from people all over the world about murder, etc. No big surprise here, there's a whole bunch of you from the South. I know a lot of you have started up private discussion groups about the case. It's pretty impressive what you've turned up just by working together. Many of you have found each other on our Facebook page, where several small communities of murder, etc. listeners are coming together. We've also had some people ask if we'd consider some live, real-world meetups for listeners and people who've been part of the show to talk about the case and trade some stories. So that's something we're looking into right now as well. If you'd actually be interested in talking online about the show or going to an in-person meetup, you can like and follow our Facebook page where we'll organize anything that we end up doing. Until then, keep listening.
We'll be back next week with another full episode of Murder, Etc. Yeah.